Now, let me just show you something to, to try to understand uh, why has John done this? Why, why has John sought to tie up some loose ends here? Why has he provided an epilogue? One of the things that John did in his writing that I tried to show you guys at times, but I'm, I'm sure you've forgotten some of these things, but I've tried to remember them. John is a very skillful gospel writer, and so he's created um, themes that he's unpacked throughout the gospel. And every time he unpacks a particular theme, he put a miracle sign at the beginning of it, and then he did a teaching, and then he bracketed it with another miracle sign. Let me show you. You, just, I just, you guys can flip through the scriptures and see. He started doing this right in the beginning of God, John's gospel. Lord, help me to be quick with this. John chapter 2, verse 1. The, the theme, and, and, and you could bracket it this way, write this down, you can look at it yourself. Chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 4 was like this first episode, episode of theme that he was creating. And what he was trying to teach was that Jesus came to bring life. He's been telling us that all along, that if you believe in him, you have what, church? Life in his name. So Jesus came to bring life. And so what he did in, in this first theme that he created, chapter 2 all the way to chapter 5, he put a miracle at the beginning of chapter 2, and then he put a miracle at the end of chapter 4, and they show that Jesus came to bring life. How does it show that he came to bring life? Well, he performed two miracles. One, his first miracle was he turned water into wine. Who is this guy? And then he ends it in... in uh, the end of chapter 4, we see that he heals an official's son. So Jesus has this power. He has this power to bring life. And then he, he has another section, chapter 5, all the way through the end of chapter 10. And he has two more miracles. And what he's trying to teach here is that even though Jesus will be rejected by his own people, he continues to offer life over and over again. And the theme of rejection flows through two miracles, both done on Sabbath days that he gets in a lot of trouble for. So on the beginning of chapter 5, we've got the healing on the Sabbath. He heals a man at the pool on the Sabbath. And then if you fast forward to to the end of chapter 10, you see another healing, a healing of a blind man, but it took place on the Sabbath, and they're really, Jesus is getting sideways with the religious leaders, all right? Then, you following with me? Then this last section we did, chapter 11 through 21, this, this idea, John portrays this idea that Jesus is actually the Son of God, he's the Christ, and he's returning to heaven to open the way to God. How's he going to return to heaven? Well, he's going to, God's going to raise him from the dead. And so this section, is, I love this stuff. Do you guys love this stuff? Chapter 11, we have someone being raised from the dead. Do you remember that story? Lazarus. Then we get all the way to the end of this section near 20. Someone else gets raised from the dead. Who gets raised at the end of chapter 20 from the dead? Jesus gets raised from the dead. Now check this. He's going to give us another miracle. He's going to put it right here in this epilogue. Did you see the miracle? Professional fishermen have fished all night. Come out zero. 
Jesus says, throw your nets to the right. So much fish that they're hauling it in, 153 large fish. He gives you a miracle. So we should be looking for the miracle that brackets it because he's always done this in pairs. He doesn't give it to us. He doesn't close this thing off with another miracle. John, what are you doing? It's brilliant. You want to know what he's doing? He's trying to help you see that we never really get to the end of the gospel. You never get to the end of the power of Jesus transforming work in your life and in others' lives. You'll never, ever, ever get to the end of your need for Jesus. You will never outgrow your need for the gospel. You'll never outgrow your need for Jesus. And so what I think he's trying to teach us with this last section that I've just read, this is, my, this is what I think he's trying to teach us. It's this. When Jesus is your everything, you can do anything. Now listen, yeah, clarify that. Clarify that. I was tossing and turning one night trying to come up with a summary statement for this sermon. And I said to Amy, middle of the night, what do you think of this? When Jesus is your everything, you can do anything. And she said, sounds great. Is it true? And I was ready. I said, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But her question has a point. Because this is not some positive, humanistic message that tells everybody you can be whatever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. Just have to try hard enough. It's not what he's teaching. And I think what saves me with the, the accuracy of the statement that I'm making is the front end of the front end of the clause. When Jesus is your everything, you can do anything as long as you're putting this in the front that you're making Jesus your everything. Because if you make Jesus your everything, then you will desire to live for Jesus. You will desire to have your life that he's rescued, that he's saved, count for something in the kingdom of God. This is not some, you can go, you can be a millionaire. You can make all kinds of money. You can have a Porsche, a BMW. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that when Jesus is your everything, whatever he calls you to, which I might add, the things that Jesus has called you to are harder to do than the things that you would do in your own strength. That's why he said in John chapter 14, apart from me, you can do nothing. 
So he's the, so why I'm saying this is an accurate summary of what the scripture teaches is because the first part is you got to make Jesus your everything. And Peter swimming to the shore to Jesus is a picture of someone who has made Jesus their everything. And then when that happens, you can do every hard thing that Jesus has called you to do. Who's with me? You cannot get away from two things in this passage. And the two things are this. There is a call on every disciple to live their lives for Jesus. And living your life for Jesus means spreading his fame. It means evangelism. It means a word that we don't like to hear. It means doing things that we're scared to do. It means living our lives on mission. You cannot get away from the fact that a healthy church, a healthy church which is made up of healthy disciples, have this as one of their driving passions. It's to cast out their nets that others might enjoy what you enjoy. That's, 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 we, we, we are faulty disciples if we say we really want to be about loving Jesus, and we should be. We are faulty disciples if we say we really want to be about loving one another, and we should be. But if you really love Jesus, and you really are loving others that God has placed into your life, then you will inevitably, if you make Jesus your everything, then his mission that he has called you to be a part of will be part of the heartbeat of your life. Amen? We you got to see this. I mean, it, it, it's right here as he's ending this gospel. This is a call to live our lives on mission. But there's another thing that he's highlighting, and it's your reliance upon God to do it. The reliance upon Jesus to be your strength. When Jesus is your everything, you can do anything. You can do the things that he's called you to do. Listen, if we want to do things... We can do a lot of things in our own strength, but Jesus says you can't do anything that has any significant or eternal value apart from him. That's just true. So you can go live your life. It's not, he's not saying you can't do anything, like you just kind of freeze there like a zombie. You can live your life apart from Christ. Even as a Christian. But if you want your life to be spent for the glory of God, and I trust you do because if his spirit is inhabiting you, you want this. If you want that to happen, if you want to make an impact with your life, then, then you're going to need the spirit of God working in you, applying the truth of God to your life, and then using you to do the things that he's called you to do. You're going to have to rely on him for strength. Now, let's just look to what's going on here in this passage. It's so, it's so vivid. It's so clear. Why are the disciples, uh, we got a map there. Put that map up if you got it, guys, real quick, just so I can show you guys contextually kind of what's, what's happening here. Um, what, I'm, what I want to show you from this picture, it's hard to see, but you see where it says Samaria and dark? Yeah, put that cursor up there. Find Jerusalem. <laughs> Just under Samaria, it's right near the Dead Sea. Get over, get over, get over, get over. Yeah, right there. All right, so there's Jerusalem. That's where we, Jesus raised from the dead. That, that's where we see Christ um, 
and, and all these scenes with doubting Thomas and appearing to the disciples, that's all taken place. But when he met with them and when he revealed himself to Mary, he told them that he was going to meet them somewhere. He told them to go somewhere so that he would meet them. Do you guys remember where he said to go? He said to go to Galilee. I'll meet you in Galilee, where they did a lot of life and ministry together. Now, if you see here, Galilee is, that's eh, probably about, that's 30, it's about, um, Galilee's up top, you see it, up top. Sea of Galilee, Sea Tiberias is right up there. That's where they're fishing. That's Galilee. Slide down a little bit towards Tiberias right there. That's Tiberias. That's, that's about where they're fishing. So it's not like they're in Jerusalem anymore. They hiked uh, 60 miles to get to the place where they said Jesus would meet them. And when they got there, these guys are like, they're a little disillusioned. Jesus has appeared to them. Pentecost hasn't happened. They're not clear what on their vision is. And so they're sitting around saying, what's going on? Peter, always willing to take leadership, says, let's go fishing. Or he didn't even say that. He didn't say, let's go fishing. He said, I'm going fishing. And they said, well, we're going to go with you then because a lot of them were fishermen. And so they went fishing and catch nothing. They fished all night, the, script, the, the scripture tells us. That, but that night, they caught nothing. So I don't, I don't want to belabor this, but when fishermen catch nothing, it's bad. I mean, like, they, they, even when they catch nothing, they don't tell you that they caught nothing. Yeah, I got a couple. Jesus asked them, how many you got? Well, we, they don't know it's Jesus. That's what's wild, too. If, if I'm fishing and I know what I'm doing and somebody yells from 100 yards away, yo, you get any? First of all, don't yell. I'm fishing, okay? You obviously don't know what's going on here. And then if he yells, yo, you're fishing in the wrong area. Put, put your line over here. I'm like, okay. And I'm not a pro. These guys were pros. I don't know what made them put their nets on the right side. If I'm Peter, I'm like, yo, mind your own business. We know what we're doing here. We've been out here all night. There ain't no fish. The, the author helps us to see that it was Jesus. They don't know that it's Jesus. And he says something. The, the, the translation's interesting. Children. It would be like if you were in Ireland, it would be something like, lads, throw your, throw your nets to the right. <laughs> if you were just, you know, in America, they'd be like, hey, boys, put your, uh, put your nets in on the right. You get some. That, that's what's happening here. But they don't recognize him for, whatever, for reasons that John doesn't tell us. It's just his resurrected body. Or they, they, they don't recognize him. Um, or it's, it, they've been fishing all night, so it's twilight. Who's that? He's 100 yards away. They can't see. I don't know. They don't know it's Jesus. For whatever reason, though, they decide to do what the stranger tells them to do. And then we see this incredible miracle. I have so many things I want to tell you guys about this, but we're just going to do the best we can. What are we supposed to realize? We're supposed to realize what I just told you. They fish all night, casting their nets, bringing them back in. Let's go over there. We always get them over there. Row over there. Cast their nets. Keep trying. Keep making effort. We're told all night long nothing. Jesus says one phrase, 
throw your nets over to the right. Evidently, Jesus could see that there was at least 153 large fish swimming under the boat at that time. And so, because Jesus has knowledge of this, they do what he says, and there is a bountiful harvest. Have you ever tried to live for Jesus in your own strength? Have you ever tried to do the right thing? You keep doing it, you keep doing it, you keep doing it, and it doesn't seem like anything happens. And then all of a sudden, the Spirit of God shows you something, speaks to you, takes something from the Word, plants it deep into your heart, and all of a sudden, there's like, there's this net, it's full. It's 150 fish. The realization you're supposed to come to is this. Apart from Christ, you can't do anything. But with Christ... With Jesus, when Jesus is your everything, you can do anything, anything that he's called you to do. I've already told you that we can't turn away from the idea that God has called us to live on mission. Mission is to be a high priority. Just like fishing was for the disciples Mission is to be a high priority. Whatever we do, whatever we do as a church, we should build one another up, build one another up in the gospel. We should seek to be a part of, a, of missional communities where we can actually grow and love one another. We should seek to attend a Bible study so that we can grow in our knowledge of God and our love for him and our love for his word. We should do all of these things. We should, we should do more even to reach the, the people in the community, people that are hurting. We, we should be making every effort to do these things but if we do all of those things if we do if we have the most amazing bible studies and we have the most amazing community group experiences and all of these things but we never get around to sharing the gospel to actually spreading the fame of Jesus to actually seeing the gospel multiply in our very midst from here and then all the way to where the Hartzels are in southeast asia if we never turn our attention to those things we are faulty disciples I'm, I'm sober by this. I'm not saying I'm great at this. I'm, I read this and I think, oh, when's the last time I shared the gospel with someone? We should be, church, we should be living in this way. And this is why we need, apart from Christ, we can't do it. We should be living in this, just like the disciples are, always casting. We're always fishing. We're always, we're always trying to be used by God that others might come to know him. That we're always casting. We're always trying. We're always making effort. We're always fishing, leaving the results to God. That's what successful missional living is. It's leaving the results to God. Who can save someone? You if you think you can save someone, come up afterwards after the service because I want to talk to you. One, I want to learn from you what you're doing, and then I also want to tell you you're wrong. <laughs> you can't. We are just called to be faithful. we got to do the best we can with what God has given us, and may God do what seems good to him. This is what he's called us to. He's called us to live, church, on mission. So this is something that we used to do. We've talked about it before. Um, I think it's important for us to consider. We used to call it the dangerous prayer. We pray this dangerous prayer. It's a dangerous prayer because I believe God will answer it, and, 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 and the result of the answer will you'll get involved in mission. Because God is drawing people to himself. We know this. He drew you. 
But he wants to draw other people too, and he wants to do that through you. So here's the dangerous prayer that we used to pray more regularly as a church. It's the dangerous prayer has two parts. God, would you give me an opportunity to share the good news with someone? Would you give me an opportunity to share Jesus with someone? And then the second part of the prayer was maybe interesting. Because you think the second part would be, and give me and, and, and make me effective at it and save them. And, and you should pray all those things. But that's not what we prayed in our second part of the prayer. This is what we prayed. Lord, would you give me an opportunity? Lord, would you help me to see it when it comes? It's dangerous because I dare you to pray that prayer. God will answer it. If you pray it and you, and you open your eyes, God will give you an opportunity to, to share Jesus. I was just talking with someone the other day. They were talking about, an, they were in the park walking, and they were walking with someone, uh, uh, someone that they know from just walking in the park, and they got into this conversation. They'd never had a chance to share. They're Christians, this other person they don't know. They, they don't know whether they're a Christian or not. They just know them from walking, and so they got into a conversation, and they realized they like a similar author. And so, so um, this, this uh, woman went home and found a book on her shelf that he had not read yet. And so she gave the, uh, the book to him to read. So the next time they were walking in the park, he said, I read the whole book. She said, you did? She said, I read the whole book. And it really um, raised some questions for me personally. She said, it did? And he said, yeah. He said, um, I really do think, this is what he said, I really do think that there is a God and I think that there is a heaven, but I know that there's no chance that I could go there. I mean, Jesus is serving it up, Right? Why do you think that? So, so this person was over at my house asking, I got this great second setup. I got this, ne- I got this next opportunity. Help me to think through what I'd say. And we just talked about the kinds of questions. Why, what, what would make you think that you couldn't get there? Let me introduce you to Jesus. Let me just share the gospel. Now, faithfulness in that woman's life is being faithful to go do that. She can't save the guy. Only God does that. All right, I've said enough. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Church, friends, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to really believe it. I'm encouraging you to pray as if you really believe that you can't do anything apart from Christ. And then you'll see the power of Christ resting upon you. Let me just make a word. Let me just make a statement. It's an observation that I've made. Have you ever wondered why? Like, how did God pick the 12? And we know Judas betrayed him, so he got 11. How did he do that? Like, why? What, what was going on? Like, why wasn't I one of the 12? Why weren't you? What was it? And so then you start to think about this. Have you ever noticed that a lot of them came from the same family? 
brother. So Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. So like two, two disciples, brothers. Then we know that the sons of Zebedee are brothers. Like, so he's calling people from the same family. You know what that tells me? That when God's at work in, in, in your life, uh, he probably has intentions with your family as well. But I also, what's being pictured here is that Jesus, when he called the disciples, many of them were fishermen. They were fishermen by vocation. Their occupation was fishermen. And he said, come, you fishermen, and I will make you what, church? Fishers of men. Have you ever thought? Have you ever thought about yourself and the way God has wired you and how he wants to take what you do vocationally and occupationally and through the giftings that he has given you to actually transform? I used to catch fish, now I catch men. I've been thinking about that because I I want you to be motivated. The same Jesus that called fish fishermen and made them fishers of men he calls some among us not many I don't know of anybody in here that's a commercial fisherman maybe there is you got a great job (laughs) I, I don't know but I know God has called a lot of you to other things and I think that there's this truth whatever our vocation is God meets us there God doesn't leave what you do untouched if you're in Christ so, so I want to envision us that, that, that the Jesus who made some of you healthcare workers, nurses, physicians, assistants, and doctors, I pray that he would make you into people that lead others to the great physician. He's made some of you to be handy. You, you fix things, you, you, you repair things, some furniture repairmen, some home repairmen. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God took that and touched that and in some way gave you a vision for repairing people's souls? Jesus takes chefs and cooks. Oh, that he would lead the people to the bread of life through you. He takes entrepreneurs. People that, entrepreneurs are those that have a vision for what isn't right now into what could be. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God would so pour out his spirit on the entrepreneurs in this church that they would have a vision for people's broken lives and what they could be if Jesus transformed them by his power. Taking artists, artists who who create beauty, and then, and then using that to show the beauty of Christ to a world that is lost and dying apart from it. Taking teachers and turning them into gospel preachers. Taking receptionists into those who welcome people into the kingdom of God. Taking sales reps and making them rep the king reps. <laughs> Taking a personal trainer and turning them into a personal evangelist. Taking people who work in finances, financial people, investment strategists, and helping people see that though apart from Christ, they are poor, they can be rich in Jesus. 
I want us to have a vision for how God wants to touch our occupations. He doesn't leave anything untouched in our lives. Let me say one word about failure, and then let me close with a story. Failure. Malcolm Muggeridge said this, failure is the most creative event in life. Whoa. I should think about that. Failure is highlighted here. It's, gonna, it's highlighted in the person of Peter. That's one of the loose ends that John needed to clean up, and he's going to finalize it next week when we look at this last section. Peter, the last time we see him, denier of Jesus, the leader of the disciples. He's a man that has known great spiritual failure. Have any of you ever confronted failure? The disciples failed that night. They didn't catch anything. Then Jesus, and Jesus shows up, and there's this large catch of fish. Failure is the most creative event in life. We need to learn that, church. We need to learn it when we're living on mission for Jesus. We just need to learn it in light. A lot of people don't want to look themselves in the mirror and acknowledge that I failed. Do you know there's a lot of life that comes when you can look in the mirror and say, this is what's true about me. Jesus meets you in that place. When we fail, we assess. Have you ever failed at something? If you fail, unless you stick your head in the sand, you start thinking, why did that go wrong? What happened? What did I do? What could I have done differently? We start to assess. When we fail, we're open to other possibilities. When we fail, we start to discard the obsolete in our lives. Failure is the indispensable ingredient to spiritual growth. It's being able to say to Jesus, I failed. And then the power of the gospel transforms you into someone who's succeeding, doing, any, doing anything because you've made Jesus your everything. Our failures bring us face to face with the reality of our own weakness. And our failures can drive us, if we are allow them, they'll drive us to Christ as our all-sufficiency, as the one who covers all of our failures with his blood. And when we fail, we acknowledge our weakness. And the scripture tells us that the strength of God is perfected in our weakness. But see, we hate acknowledging we failed. We hate it. We squirm. We resist. We want to blame other people. You got an F on that test. Yeah, terrible teacher. You, you heard that. You've done that. It's not my failure. It's someone else's failure. But until we can get to the place where we look and say, Jesus, I failed then you'll never, then that's, that solution, the solution for the failure remains elusive. But when we can acknowledge that we've failed and we've failed spiritually, then we get the solution that Christ provides. And in our weakness, we become strong because the power of Christ is then resting upon us. This is why I say you can come as you are. You can come to Brandywine Grace as you are. And Jesus will meet you where you are. Peter, the rock, rises out of the rubble 
of failure. Malcolm Muggeridge goes on to say, Christianity from the cross at Golgotha until now has been the sanctification of failure. So what the gospel does is it sanctifies those that are failures apart from him. We will only get an F if we try to live apart from Jesus. You will fail at life because Jesus is the answer. He is this only Savior of the world. He is the one true light. And so if you don't believe in him, you don't get life in his name. And it doesn't matter how good you are at anything else. If you die apart from Christ, it's a fail. But Jesus offers himself to you. Apart from any effort on your own, the grace of God saves sinners. Isn't that amazing? That's the amazing gospel. Oh, I have so many things I want to share with you guys, but we're going to end with this. I want you to see something. Let me get the band to return and Jairus to come up. Let me just show you one thing. Do you see this? This really blew me away, and it's a good way to end. When they came up onto the shore, Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now, hold on, I want to back up. Go to verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. John gives really vivid details. It's a charcoal fire. Fish are laid on it and bread. Do you know where we saw a charcoal fire last? In this gospel? Look at this. John chapter 18, go there. It's the denial of, it's Peter's denial of Jesus. Verse 18. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself while Jesus was being brutally beaten inside, and he will deny his Savior while standing at a charcoal fire, warming himself. Got another charcoal fire. But Peter's in a different place at this one, isn't he? There was a point in time where Jesus, where Peter witnessed a miracle of fish. It's not the same story Luke 5 captured. It's a different episode altogether. But Jesus tells them while in the boat, throw your nets over. And they say, we've been fishing all night. He catches, they, they, they catch this amazing pile of fish that in this case the nets are breaking they can't haul it in and do you remember what Peter says to Jesus in that moment get away from me get away from me see if if you see God in all his holiness and your sin and your rebellion hasn't been dealt with that is you're gonna be your response get away from me Lord get away from me I can't have anything to do with you I'm dirty And you're holy. I've done so many wrong things, and I know you can see them. 
Get away from me. But when you understand that you can come to Jesus as you are and that he came and lived and suffered and died and rose again to take dirty people and make them clean, clothed in his robes of righteousness, washed in his blood, then you can do like Peter when he hears that it's the Lord. He doesn't just say, hi, Jesus. He throws some clothes on because evidently he was near naked fishing and he, and he, I don't know why he would put a jacket on to swim, but he, you don't get the impression that Peter's a good swimmer. He just throws himself into the, into the water, the Sea of Galilee, and he swims for it and he stands on that shore in front of Jesus. He knows it's the Lord and he stands there dripping wet, knowing that he has been redeemed by the blood of of the lamb. Two charcoal fires, two very different responses. You can come to Jesus as you are and he will save you. And I, I say, I prefer the second charcoal fire to the first. I hope you will as well. This is what God is teaching us from his word, that we never outgrow our need for Jesus. When Jesus is your everything, you can do anything but return to the first clause of that phrase. When Jesus is your everything. Is he your everything?